Right, we're, so we're in the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 4, beginning of Acts chapter 4, we'll run down Acts chapter 1, Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God ascends to heaven and they replace Judas as the 12th apostle. Acts chapter 2 is events of the day of Pentecost where Holy Spirit comes down, Peter preaches, 3,000 people are baptized in the beginning of the first church. Acts chapter 3, which we talked about last time, Peter and John at uh, the hour of prayer, <laughs> one of the hours of prayer anyway, is uh, they're going off to the, the temple in the afternoon, uh, Solomon's portico, and they heal a crippled man, asks for money, and he gets more than what he asked for. He gets, he gets healed. And, and Peter preaches very boldly to the people in the temple area in Acts chapter 3, and so we're going to pick up where that left off. That got him in some trouble here. So this is, he's preaching the word powerfully, and we're seeing, we're going to see the, the after effects of that here. Now, one of the things that's really great about studying the book of Acts is, we mentioned, I mentioned before, Luke 24, Jesus opened the minds of the apostles and he explained how his death, burial, and resurrection was, was in fulfillment of all these things that were in the prophecies, which he never explained before that time. Now, unfortunately, in, in Luke 24, it doesn't give us any of the details. It just says he explained it to the apostles. But in the book of Acts, we have the continuation of the story. And by listening carefully to what Peter and the other apostles are preaching, we can put together what Jesus was telling them. So as Jesus, we're, so we're getting this second hand. We have to all work backwards and figure this out. So already in the first three chapters of the book of Acts, by my count, we have hit ten prophecies about the uh, passion, death, resurrection of Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus. We've hit ten different prophecies already, and we're going to hit two more today, Lord willing. So just uh, the rundown from that. Acts chapter 1, Peter gave us two, two, uh, two of the Psalms tied in with the death and replacement of Judas and the betrayal of Jesus and the crucifixion. That's in Psalm 69 and Psalm uh, Psalm 109, and uh, then in Acts chapter 2, Peter starts off with Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let my body see decay. It's a prophecy about the resurrection of the, the one descended from David. And then Acts chapter 2, we talked about Peter doesn't quote it, but he is alluding to it. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, he's alluding to four passages in the Old Testament that talk about this great promise, very detailed promise, it was given to David in 2 Samuel 7, repeated in 1 Chronicles 17, and then in uh, Psalm, Psalms 89 and 132, that is repeated with an oath. So Peter Peter's referring to that promise, that very detailed, specific promise that points to the Jesus, the, the Christ being raised up. It says, in the future, I'll raise up one of your descendants. He'd be raised up physically. He would rule over the eternal kingdom. He'd build the temple that would never be destroyed, and he would be referred to as the Son of God. So amazing prophecy right there. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 110 that starts off talking about being seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And then Acts chapter 3, we looked at Peter quotes from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 19. It's a great prophecy where God had promised Moses, it says, in the future I will raise up 
a prophet like you. And it's a packed prophecy, as we talked about in quite some detail last last time we are together, that this was not only he's going to raise him up, and Peter says yes, and he, guess what? He just did raise him up. He raised him up physically. So it's his prophecy about the resurrection. But then in the life of Moses, just as the Lord told Moses, I'll raise up a prophet like you, and there's so much packed into that, that if we look into the life of Moses, we will see so many very specific details about the life of Jesus. We, I think we, we talked about 15 of them last time. There's a lot more in there. As Eusebius says, you can check those out at your leisure, as, as he put it. So as you have time, read the five books of Moses, and you can fly, find the rest of them that are, that are hidden in there. And then there was a little enigmatic wine... And Peter, Peter just says, well, you know, all the prophets talk about these things that have just happened. It's not just, he, 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 so this is, uh, he, he gave, we mentioned 11 there, and, and he, it's a hint of a 12th prophecy when he says, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow. And so, wait a minute, from Samuel, since Samuel was born and died, all in the book of 1 Samuel, you have to be, a, must be a prophecy in there. And sure enough, there is a prophecy in there that talks about the Christ the anointed one, that he would, and it speaks about God would raise up a faithful priest to be over a faithful house. And that's that's really the basis for, in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 3, and throughout the book of Hebrews, this is one of the themes of Hebrews, is that Christ is the faithful high priest. Now, are we going to be the faithful house? That's the challenge for us, is are we going to be faithful? So, so that's 12 prophecies, and we're only in Acts chapter 3. There's a lot, there's a lot more and, and two more today. So just, uh, just this is one of the reasons why it's really great to read the, the book of Acts, not just to see that the church was spread, but to see how people were convinced. It was ba- on the basis of the prophecies that had been fulfilled and also the miraculous signs that was uh, very helpful as well. So... Peter, as we talked about last time, Peter very boldly in the area of the temple. This is this is on the home turf of Jesus's greatest enemies, the people who had uh, betrayed Jesus and set him up to be crucified. So Peter is preaching the gospel there. He heals the man, gives all the credit to Jesus, and then he goes after the religious leaders there. So this is this is in the temple area, and he's addressing them, and he says, "You people are the ones who who crucified the Son of God." He said Pilate wanted to let him go, but you wanted him killed, and he says, "And you asked that a murderer Barabbas be released to you instead of the Prince of Life." So so he really goes after them, and he calls them to repent. Very very bold message there. And uh, so, so in Acts chapter 4, so now after having done this, Peter understandably gets in big trouble with the religious leaders in the temple area. And we'll read about that. To appreciate what happens next, a little bit of background, because it talks about Caiaphas here in the next section. And uh, in, uh, in John chapter 11... Just, just get an appreciation for the people that Jesus is going to be before. John chapter 11, 
Start reading in verse 49. This is the same Caiaphas. It says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So this is, this is the guy who says, look, it's better for one man to die than for all of us to die. So let's just, it was he was the, the mastermind behind putting Jesus to death. That's who Caiaphas was, who was the high priest that year. And Matthew and John, Caiaphas is specifically mentioned by name in those Gospels, uh, who he was and, and what his role is specifically in the crucifixion of Jesus. So this remember, this is, the events that we're looking at here are just a matter of a couple months, a few weeks, really, after the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's go back to John chapter 18, which will give us an appreciation for both for Peter and for Caiaphas. Let's John chapter 18. This is just a little background before we get into Acts 4. It's helpful, helpful for, for me to, to appreciate the people involved. So after this, after Jesus is captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 18, starting in verse 12, and then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas to advise the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We just read that. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servant and the officers who made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his teach and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret, and I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Then, he's, uh, then when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. So, uh, 
the things that, that this helps me to understand the relationship between Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, so the high priest. Both of them are right at the top echelon of those among the Jews who are involved in the, uh, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter, these are the people Peter's afraid of. When he went before Jesus is crucified, he is worried about these guys, and he's intimidated, and he's afraid of them, and that's why he denied three times. He says, no, I don't know the guy, because he sees what they're about to do to Jesus, and he's concerned for his own skin. That's, that was the motivation of why he lied, is because, because of these people and the people associated with them. Uh, it says, it also, it says, it's interesting here, it says that one of the disciples uh, knew the high priest, and a lot of people think because of the way the Gospel of John is written that he, reads, he writes about himself kind of in the third person without, without giving away who it was. That, so John may have known the high priest as well. So Peter and John, and the, the account we're about to look at, is, are both uh, being brought before the high priest here. So the other thing I notice is that, that you think about this, if the apostles wanted to write a story that would make themselves look good or look heroic, I mean, this is the worst possible thing you could put in there, is that he denied three times that he even knew Jesus, and he completely wimped out as a coward. So, this to me, this gives a real credibility to the gospel accounts when you see... The apostles, the ones who are carrying the message forward, the ones who are writing down these accounts, that, that, that they are presenting themselves in a very, a very uh, unfavorable light, put it this way. But then something happened to Peter. This is the same guy who is skulking around and denying that he even knows Jesus and consider what, he, what, he, what is about to happen in Acts chapter 4. So let's pick it up there after... Jesus has, after Peter has boldly preached in the temple area, let's consider what happens to him. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. So this is Peter and John. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. <clears throat> and it came to pass, on the next day, the rulers, the elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander and as many as were the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, who has become the chief cornerstone. <clears throat> Nor is there salvation in any other 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they could, not say, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a noble miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So a couple of things here. One is this miracle is contributing to the church growing and multiplying, that that. There's, a, there's an upswelling, and the leaders feel threatened that this is getting out of control. In Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 that were added in the beginning on the first day and the day of Pentecost. Here it says there are 5,000 men, and the word men can be ambiguous, but, but it, it means males here, basically. <laughs> it says there are 5,000 males, 5,000 men in the church, so the church is maybe 10,000 people. It's gone from 3,000 here to to, uh, uh, I assume, 10,000 or more when you include the women there. So the church is multiplying and growing. Uh, I notice here the boldness of Peter, especially considering who he's speaking to. So he's speaking in the temple, and then he gets in trouble. He gets arrested by the, the leaders in the temple area, and then they bring him in front of all the top brass of the Jewish nation. The entire household of the family, the high priest, the elders, the scribes, and the leaders of the community. And not only are Peter and John there, but also the man that they healed was standing there with them. I guess I, had, I hadn't I'd missed that detail in the past, but he's standing there right there with him, the guy who was healed. And what are the leaders going to say? No, you didn't heal the guy? I mean, everybody knows that he was, he was a lame man. Everybody knows he's healed, so they're stuck. They're, they're, they're in a bad position. Um, and, and the people recognize the healing and are moved by this. So they, they also feel like they can't really punish the apostles for doing what, uh, what people are glorifying God for. Uh, Peter gave, just as he did at, in the temple area, when he is in front of the leaders, he gives all of the glory to Jesus. He gives all the credit to Jesus for the healing. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. It's in his name that the healing took place. He gives all the, the credit to Jesus. And then he quotes a prophecy uh, that Jesus actually has spoken about himself from uh, Psalm, Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. 
but he weaponizes it. He personalizes it. He, he, puts, he puts the name of the, the people and delivers the package to the front door. He said, the st- not the stone the builders rejected. He said, the stone which you builders rejected. He goes right after them. So he is surrounded by the high priests and all the Jewish leaders. And he says, this is a prophecy about you. You were the ones who rejected the stone by God. Uh, this psalm that he quotes from here, the stone which uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is a prophecy that Jesus had quoted referring to himself. So Jesus, Peter knew this because Jesus and Jesus even before he rose from the dead, he explained this. And this is a significant prophecy in the midst of a very significant parable of Jesus. And I think for evangelizing a lot of the world, this is a, this is a parable. It's a simple parable, but it's one that we would do well to master. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20. And in each, each of the versions, you learn a little, a little more. Uh, so they're not exactly the same, but it's the same story, three parallel accounts, very, very simple but incredibly powerful. And I'm going to look at, let's look at the example of Matthew 21. The first thing I want to notice here is who Jesus is speaking to when he gives this, when he explains this prophecy uh, of Psalm 118 in connection with the parable he tells. Matthew 21. Verse 23, now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? So, so Jesus is in the temple area, and it's the same people, the same crowd of people who are confronting Peter, the same kind of people who are challenging Jesus. Who are you? What are you doing here? And so Jesus is addressing it, and then he tells a parable. A lot of times Jesus will tell his most offensive teachings in the form of a parable because it gets the truth out, but you have to figure it out yourself, okay? So verse 33, it's a a wonderful parable, and I think that that, that we really need to pay more attention to this parable because it's so powerful and so useful in evangelism. Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? So Jesus tells the parable and he asks the question, What's the owner going to do when he shows up? They said to him, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vine dresser to the uh, vine, vineyard to the other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected 
has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So here, so here's the same setting. Jesus is, is giving this parable, and he's saying the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the same, the same prophecy that, that, that Peter is using here in a similar situation talking to the same people. A uh, couple things to notice here that I notice in this parable that are, that are very useful. Um, this is a parable about the kingdom of God. Verse 43, he says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. So what is this, this vineyard that he's talking about? It's the kingdom of God. This, this to me, this is just like what it says in Romans chapter 11 about the olive tree. You know, that the, the, the Jews who did not have faith were broken off from the olive tree and the Gentiles were grafted in. In, in this case here, it's, it's a different allegory, but exactly the same point that he's making is that, that the Jews are going to lose the kingdom of God and it's going to be given to another people. It's going to be given to the Gentiles. It's going to be given to those of faith. Uh, the landowner, obviously, in this story is God the Father, and he sends his prophets who were abused and killed by his people. And then, this is really important, he says, last of all, I will send my son. Last, I'm going to send my son. Now, why is this important? You know, there's a lot of people in the world. I don't know how many billion Muslims there are in the world right now, but this is. I lived. I've lived in a, a, a places in the world where there are lots and lots of Muslims, and what they will teach. I've read the Quran. What they teach is that Jesus was a prophet, and he was the Christ, and he was even born of a virgin. That all of those things are true. But they'll teach he, he didn't die on the, actually die on the cross. So obviously he wasn't physically raised from the dead since he didn't die on the cross. They'll teach he, was, he didn't die on the cross, it only appeared like that. And they'll say he wasn't the son of God. And this, I hear from Muslims all over the world, they say he wasn't the son of God because God can't have a son. All right? Well, this parable right here. Jesus is a, if Jesus is a prophet of God, this is his explanation here. He says, last of all, he sends his son. He sends his own son, last of all. Okay, uh, so first of all, God can't have a son. He does have a son, and he sends him last of all. What does that mean? If the son, this is like, I think of like a baseball game. You say, bottom of the ninth inning, okay, I've got a baseball player. Bottom of the ninth inning, you know, base is loaded, down by two runs, or down by a run. And, and the manager says, okay, my son is going in last. He's going to bat last, and when he's done, the game is over. No one bats after him. That's it. He hits it out of the park, and the game is over. It's a walk-off home run. No more at-bats after that. Okay? 
So the point that he's making is profit, 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 more profits, the sun over. That's it. There's not going to be any more profits coming. There's not going to be any more new direction that's given after the sun comes. What does that say about Muhammad? Oops. <laughs> what does that say about Joseph Smith? What does that say about Baha'u'llah, who is, who is you know, the leader, the, the prophet of the Baha'is? All these people say, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. He's, he's a prophet of God. He's the Christ. But, but we have more. We've got another prophet to come. No, after the, after the sun is sent, it's over. No more prophets. Okay? Very simple. And if there's any question about, you say, well, does it, does it really mean last? Well, you can take a look. At the, the word is even more emphatic in Mark chapter 12, verse, it's verse 6 in the account of Mark. And the word there, it means last. Okay? That's, that's what, what it says right there. So uh, the other thing is it says that the wicked tenants are going to kill the sun. The son comes last and he's going to get killed. That's what Jesus is explaining in this parable. So, of course, he got killed. He is the heir of the father, the one who's going to receive the inheritance. He's different from all the other prophets. And then Jesus points to this prophecy about the rock from Psalm 118, which is 117 in the Septuagint. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay? The uh, this is the, the chief cornerstone is like the most important stone in the entire structure. Whether you're building a wall or you're building a house, whatever you're building a stone structure, the chief cornerstone is the is the prime stone, which which sets where everything else is going to be. Uh, now, a little something else I know as I, I was reading through this prophecy, I noticed something I, I had missed before. Now maybe everybody else got this, but somehow somehow I was late to the party on this one. So to hear Jesus. In verse 44, there's a little throwaway line here. So he, he, he quotes this prophecy from, obviously a quote from, from Psalm 118. Then he makes a little, little side comment. He says, whoever falls on this stone, referring to himself, he is the stone, will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind into powder. Well, what's that talking about? Okay. This is talking about two other prophecies in the Old Testament. He's not quoting them, so you don't find them in the bottom, but he's alluding to them. And he assumes that you know what he's talking about. He's talking to Jewish people, or he's talking to Jews. But he's, he's taking this idea of the stone, and he's, he's translating it into two other prophecies. One of them, if you read from Peter, first we, we talked about this in, in um, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, where Peter talks about three of the stone prophecies. The, there's the one that's uh, from Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, let's read that. We'll read that from the Septuagint. And uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, he's referring to. So he's making several points about this stone based on the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah chapter 8, 13, I'm reading from a version based on the Septuagint, which is what Peter, when he's quoting from the Old Testament, this is generally what he's following. Uh, sanctify the Lord himself and he shall be your fear. So if you trust in him, he shall be a sanctuary for you and you shall come against him as a stumbling stone and you shall not come against him as a stumbling stone nor as a rock of disaster. But the house of Jacob lies in wait with a snare and those in Jerusalem with a trap. Therefore, uh, many among them shall be powerless and shall fall and be broken 
and men who were in safety shall draw near and be conquered. So this is the idea about, this is the stone that can be either a sanctuary, protection, or it can be, for, for the wicked, it will be a stumbling stone. They will trip over it, and it says here, they will be broken. So that's what it says. Jesus said there, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. So he is, the, he is the, either the sanctuary or the stumbling stone, depending on which one. So that's another element here. And then the other thing he says here, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, what is that talking about? Um, what is that talking about? There's a a little more. I, I like to I like to check different translations. A little more accurate translation, a more literal. I'll put it say a more literal translation. That's from the New American Standard Bible. It's a very very literal translation of that phrase. Is but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's. That's a, that's a more accurate translation. Grinding powder so it will scatter them. But the idea is the same. It's gonna, you're going to be smashed, and then you're going to be pulverized and blown, blown away by the wind. All right. Now, does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Okay, Daniel chapter two. That's what it reminds me of. Let's go there. Yes, Daniel chapter two. That's what he's, that's what he's referring to. And if you're reading in the Septuagint, he's using, he's using actually the same, the same Greek word that they use in Daniel chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Daniel chapter 2. This is where the king has a dream and it bothers him and he he'll tells the wise men, please interpret my dream for me. And they said, sure, tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. He says, no, no, you tell me the dream. <laughs> you tell, then I'll know you're not knowing you're the real deal. You tell me the dream and you interpret it. No, of course, nobody could do that. And so they're, they're getting killed. And, and then Daniel asks for time, prays, the Lord reveals it to him. And let's pick it up in verse 31. So Daniel's explaining the vision that the king had. It says, as for you, O king, you saw and beheld one great image. The image was very large and its appearance excellent. It stood before you and its vision was fearful. The image had a head made of fine gold. Its hands and chest and arms were made of silver. Its stomach of thighs of copper, or some translations will say bronze. Its legs were of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You saw that while a stone was cut out of a mountain... Without hands, it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and ground them to powder. Then at once the clay, the iron, the copper, and the silver, and the gold were like dust from the summer threshing floor, and a great force of wind blew them away, and their place was not to be found. Then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the earth. Um, Okay, and then verses 44 and 45. He's explaining the significance. Okay, and and this is talking about the fourth, but it goes through the the three parts of the statue and then the fourth part where the stone smashes. It says, Then in the times of those kings, referring to the the fourth fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will raise up a kingdom, and it shall never be destroyed. This kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it will break in pieces and crush all these kingdoms. It will stand forever. 
Whereas you saw the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, it ground to powder the clay, the iron, the copper, the silver, and the gold. Thus the great God has made known to the king what must come to pass after this. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So what's Jesus saying? He's the stone. He's, he, is the, he is the stumbling stone for, for those who are disobedient. He is the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. And it says that anyone who trips over him will stumble and be broken, but anyone on whom I fall is going to get smashed and obliterated and scattered like dust in the wind, like chaff in the wind. So that's what he's referring to here. He is the rock. He is the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. It's a beautiful way of illustrating that Jesus is begotten of the Father, not by human hands. He wasn't born by the agency of, of man. He was born by the he was he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So I think it points to the, the fact that the nature he's a rock cut out of a mountain. He comes from the Father. He proceeds from the Father. And it points to the virgin birth as well. And also points, it says that it becomes a kingdom that fills the whole earth. This is the kingdom that will never that will that will never have an end. So uh, so Jesus here is talking about three of the rock prophecies. And I think there's there's one more here. We talked about this a little bit in the Gospel of John. At the end of John chapter one, this little line. Where Jesus says, uh, John 1, 51, he tells Nathaniel, he says, he says, you'll see, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's that referring to? That's, that's the story in Genesis 28, where Jacob he puts his head down on a certain stone. And he has a vision of a ladder between heaven and earth. The angels of God are ascending and descending. He wakes up and does something unusual with the stone. He sets it up and he pours oil on the stone. And he says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. Okay. What's the significance of pouring oil? The anointed one. That's it. Why would you pour oil on a stone? Because the rock represents the anointed one who will be the gate of heaven. So this is... So whenever you see something strange happening with a rock in the scriptures, this may be, just as the first strange incident was when the rock was anointed with oil. This is the Christ. This is the anointed one. So uh, many, many wonderful things to learn about that. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 118. In the Septuagint, um, I think in the Septuagint it's uh, I think Psalm 117. It's, it's, I'll make it easy for you. It's the psalm that's right before the really long one, all right? <laughs> it's between the really short one and the really long one. All right, that's the one. <clears throat> and and with, with all of that in mind, that Peter is referring to it, Jesus is referring to it, let's think about some of the things in this psalm that I think will remind us of Jesus. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. Says the Lord is my helper; I shall look upon my enemies. It's good to trust in the Lord rather than trust in man. It's good to hope in the Lord rather than hope in rulers. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. They circled and surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. So they surrounded me like bees around a honeycomb, and they inflamed like fire in a thorn bush. But in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. I was shoved and disheartened that I might fall. But the Lord took hold of me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He became my salvation. The sound of exceeding joy and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. 
The right hand of the Lord worked his power. The right hand of the Lord exalted me. The right hand of the Lord worked his power. I shall not die, but live and tell the Lord's works. The Lord chastened and corrected me, but he did not give me up to death. Open the gates of righteousness to me. I will enter therein and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall go in through it. I will give thanks to you, for you heard me, and you became my salvation. The stone the builders rejected, the same became the head of the corner. And this came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us greatly rejoice and be glad therein. O Lord, save us now. O Lord, prosper us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's where that line comes from. We blessed you from the house of the Lord. So this is blessed is he who comes in the name. This is the line when Jesus is coming into the triumphant entry into, into Jerusalem. He says that. And then he also repeats that line in connection with, I think, the second coming in, um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, uh, Matthew 23 to 39. Uh, so let's go back to Acts chapter 4 here. You know, whenever I see a prophecy in the New Testament, I want to go back and read it in the Old Testament. I, I like to do that. And I say, well, sometimes I see a lot more that was there than I, I wouldn't have seen otherwise. One of the most disturbing verses in the Bible for... People today, mm. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Let's think about this. Peter says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is that true or not? That's correct. Okay. This is, this is so politically and culturally incorrect. I, I work for a company, and, uh, you know, although I, I think of my co company as being, I used to think of my company as being kind of on the stodgy conservative side, but but the company is trying to get up with the times right now, okay? And so, so of course, like pretty much every other company, it's diversity, equity, inclusion is the, the, this, is the this is the banner of the company, Okay. When it comes to diversity and inclusion, okay, yeah. let's think about this. Peter says there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is exclusion. This is exclusive. Okay, it's the same. There's only one way, and this is it. That's what Peter says. Now, is he overstating his case, or we misunderstand? Is there some other way we might be able to interpret this? Does this strike you as disturbing, offensive, arrogant? What do you think? And remember, Peter, Peter is Peter's saying this from a position of total weakness. He's standing surrounded by the Jewish leaders who have killed Jesus and rejected him, and he's saying he's the only way to God. Imagine the boldness that it took to make a statement like that. Does this is this is this an outlier or do the other scriptures say the same thing? Jesus himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Okay. What do you do with that? Mark 16, verses 15 to 16, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And if this is true, if this is true, there's not very many people who are saved. Matthew 7, near the close of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus lays out incredibly challenging teachings, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go by it, but narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. To me, today especially, this is one of the most challenging and offensive teachings mm -hmm. of the Bible. And I don't see any way around it. I cannot find any way around it. Is that the way is narrow, only a few will be saved, and without Jesus, Jesus is the only way we can be saved. Uh, and that may sound really arrogant, but either it's true or it's not. And this is what Jesus is saying, and this is what the apostles are saying, and they went to their death preaching that. Luke 13, they asked Jesus the question, verses 22 to 30. We don't have time to read that right now, but I encourage you to go back. And people asked Jesus the question, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And, and he doesn't take the opportunity to say, well, look, I, I was just speaking, I was just trying to make a point, you know, I was just, just trying to challenge people, but don't worry, most people are really going to make it. No, he doubles and triples down. He doubles down and says, no, you better, you better make every effort to make it through the narrow way that really only a few are going to be saved. Um, okay, if, if we really embrace this as being true, and either it's true or it's not, uh, what are the implications for us? I mean, some people, the implication is you feel arrogant. You feel arrogant. Well, you know, I've got it right, and you're, and you know, I'm going to heaven. I've got it right. You've all got it wrong. Well, that's not what motivated Peter. Peter wasn't arrogant about it. It was a feeling of desperation of saying, "Wow, we have, we have the cure to an illness that's killing everybody else around us. What can we do to save people's lives? What can we do to persuade them?" to have eternal life. Uh, and it should motivate us to be urgent about seeking and saving the lost. And this idea that only a few people are saved, this, is, this goes so against my brain and my nature. I mean, I want to believe in my, I want to believe there's lots of ways. I want to believe that everybody's going to be saved in the end and there's lots of ways to get to God. <laughs> That's what, I'd like to believe that, but I can't, reading the Bible, I can't get there. I just can't get there. I just, there's just no way. I mean, is, if the teachings of the New Testament aren't clear enough, which they are crystal clear, God makes it abundantly clear in the Old Testament. There are four stories in a row that God gives us to get across this idea that only a few people are going to be saved. The flood of Noah. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 3. He says, In the flood of Noah, only a few people were saved through water. And he says, In this water, there's an antitype that now saves us baptism. 
Okay? That's the point that Peter makes. The world was destroyed, only a few were saved, and that's how they were saved. Story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which Jesus talks about. Three made it out a lot. Four departed, and only three made it safely out. Everybody else was destroyed. It's a foreshadowing of, of, of the final dis- destruction that's going to come to the world. Story of the Passover. The angel of death brought death to the firstborn in every household except for those who were in the house that had the blood of the lamb over the doorframe and who remained in the house. And then the fourth one is the story of Rahab and her household, sitting at Jericho. This is basically, this is a foreshadowing of the, the final destruction of the world. Is that the, 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 this is the second coming of Jesus, of, of Joshua, Jesus, the same name. And the walls of Jericho, it's the shout, it's the sound of a trumpet. This is the second coming. And the walls come down. Everybody is wiped out except for the household of Rahab who has the scarlet cord hanging out the window. Why scarlet? Why does it bother to mention that? We all know the answer to that. It's foreshadowing. It's the blood of Christ. And the early Christians understood it that way. This is foreshadowing the Christians. And the good news is Rahab was a prostitute who repented and, and she shows up as the second woman mentioned in the New Testament. So, so thank God for that. She's held up by James as an example of someone who risked her life for faith. So there's hope for everybody. That even though only a few are saved from destruction, there is hope for everybody that's out there. Uh, let's continue. Acts chapter 4. Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look to their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So Peter and John are released. They go back to the other apostles and they pray together and they start with Psalm 2. And which speaks of the rulers of this world conspiring together in opposition to the Christ, the anointed one. They ask for boldness in the face of opposition. They also ask for miraculous signs to be done in the name of Jesus to confirm the word. Now, I notice that here that some things that they don't ask for, they don't ask for a stop of the persecution. <laughs> they said, God, could you help those people just lay off of us right now? They said, no. The kings of the earth are going to gonna take their stand against the Christ, so this is exactly what we should expect. We just need to be bold. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times in evangelism, I want to pray for open hearts. I want to I want to find somebody who's seeking God today. You know, lead me to some soul today. Okay. <laughs> God, show me an open person, somebody who's just seeking, who's praying for you, who's seeking you right now. Uh or, or God, take away the persecution that, 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 that I might upstand. So they're not praying for that. They're praying for boldness. They're just praying. They want to scatter the seed everywhere. God, help us to not be intimidated and not shut down. I mean, I think the, the people that I've seen in my life who have the greatest impact spiritually for seeking and saving the lost, they're generally not the most eloquent people. <laughs> they're, a lot of times they're the boldest people. They're people who, you know, when you're when your conscience is saying, "Don't be an idiot," you're gonna don't don't open your mouth. They're gonna they're gonna you know don't wait for a better opportunity. Don't do now. When when all those voices that are telling you to keep your mouth closed and not share the gospel with somebody, is that the people who blew either they didn't have that voice or they just didn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> the people who are bold, and, and I believe that we will we will do we will do well to copy their example and to be praying for boldness. Mm. And, I mean, these guys are pretty bold to start off for, but they're, to start off with, they're praying for even more boldness. That, 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 that impresses me. Is, well, these guys are incredibly bold. Peter and John are bold, and they're praying mm-hmm. for more boldness. Amen. And God answers their prayer. And and uh, uh, they're given boldness, and, mm. and, uh, and they go out and continue to preach the gospel. Uh, and this is this is and here we've run across the twelfth prophecy so far about the Christ, which is Psalm two. And there in the Psalm two, and he's quoting from the Septuagint, the, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So that's, that's exactly what it says. It's the Christos, the same word from the Septuagint. It's the same word Christ, the Anointed One. So this is it talks about that in the Scriptures. Uh, this is, and then, you know, I was talking about sharing the faith with, with Muslims before. I'll g- give an example of, of uh, share with them places in the New Testament that contradict what, what they teach. It talks from the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 21. And the standard reply that I get is to say, well, you know, the Christians changed the New Testament. I said, well, when did they change the New Testament? <laughs> they can't give me an answer. So anything that contradicts the Quran, well, the Christians changed that afterwards. So, I decided as a fallback position, I said, I don't even need the New Testament. I'll give you the let's I'll prove it to you from the Old Testament. It says right here in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And then later on in Psalm 2, which was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, it talks about the Christ as being the Son of God. So this is a thousand years before Jesus was born. In the Jewish scriptures, the Muslims cannot say that the Christians changed the story because it's, it's right in there uh, beyond, uh, uh, beyond question. So uh, in the same place where it says the rulers oppose the Lord against his, uh, stand together against the Lord against his Christ, it also says... You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the idea that Christ is the only begotten son of the Father did not start in John chapter 1. Okay, It started a thousand years before in Psalm 2. We talked about this quite a bit more in a lesson we did recently on Psalm 2. So we'll start for today, stop for today, and we'll pick it up next time where we left off. Amen.